We plan based on data, but all of our data comes from the past. So we're driving ahead into the future, looking backwards into the past. And when climate isn't changing, that's totally fine. So we've planned our civilization based on the past and it has worked great until now. Now we have to look to the future because there's a curve coming up. And in fact, our wheels are already on the rumble strip of the curve. And by the time people actually contact me, they usually hear the wheels on the rumble strip. And that's why they're saying we need more information. Welcome to the ESRI in the Science of Aware podcast. You just heard climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, co-director of the Climate Center at Texas Tech University, emphasize the importance of data and analytics in monitoring the Earth's changing climate. Professor Hayhoe dedicates much of her time and expertise explaining in everyday language the current and emerging impacts of climate change on people and places around the world. An endowed professor of political science at Texas Tech, she has twice been listed among foreign policy magazine's 100 global thinkers. Here, ESRI Chief Scientist Don Wright lead an energetic discussion on future scenarios and strategies that will reduce the effects of climate change on food, water, and infrastructure. All right, Professor Catherine Hayhoe, we are so very, very excited to have you on our ESRI and the Science of Wear podcast. Warm welcome to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. On a personal note, Catherine and I have been friends over the internet for many years. We just only a few years ago recently met in person at uh, one of the largest Earth Day events in the world held in Dallas, Texas. But we felt as though we knew each other for for many, many years. We have really uh, enjoyed following your work uh, over the years. And we are so impressed with how you have developed uh, high resolution climate projections to evaluate the future impacts of climate change on human society and the environment. And you are one of the most awesome Earth climate communicators or climate science spokeswomen on this planet. Uh, we know that the New York Times has called you a climate explainer. And in the last decade, you've become one of the most quoted voices of climate change. And one of the things that is really valuable to many of us in the scientific community as well as those of us who are also in the geospatial community, is that you've been very transparent about how your personal life and your faith have affected your work. What made you decide to step into the spotlight, or perhaps you were drawn into the spotlight, in terms of evangelizing about climate change rather than just studying it? Well, I have to say, first of all, that I don't feel like I'm evangelizing because that means to spread good news. I feel like it's more like being an Old Testament prophet, telling people, <laughs> here are the horrible things that will happen if you do not change your ways. I mean, that's actually a pretty good description of what we do with climate change, right? So, so what turned me into a Cassandra or a Jeremiah? First, I think it was really the recognition that there were so many people being deliberately fed false information in a very cold and calculated way. I realized people need to be hearing this information and they need to be hearing it from somebody who they wouldn't automatically characterize as a atheist liberal tree hugger, but rather somebody who shares their values because to care about climate change, it certainly helps if we're a you know, liberal tree hugger, but we don't have to be that. We only have to be a human living on this planet and every single one of us is that. Such a good segue into another topic that we do need to touch on 
which is the coronavirus pandemic with mm -hmm. all of us as humans living on this planet, facing this uh, momentous uh, and very disturbing and dangerous situation. And it's been very, very gratifying, I think, uh, from my sense to see that there are more and more discussions about connections between COVID-19 and climate change. And I've uh, enjoyed watching one of your recent global weirding episodes on YouTube, where you, you talk about just that connection. Could you share some of that for our listeners? Absolutely. So first of all, climate change did not cause the coronavirus pandemic. We just mm -hmm. need to say that. But climate change is, as the US military calls it, a threat multiplier. In other words, it takes the issues that we're already concerned about today and it exacerbates them or makes them worse. Issues like what? Issues like biodiversity loss, habitat loss for wildlife, issues like poverty, lack of access to food and resources for some of the people in the poorest places in the world. The fact that burning fossil fuels doesn't just produce heat trapping gases that are causing climate change, burning fossil fuels also produces air pollution. And if we live in very polluted areas, we are much more vulnerable to respiratory diseases like coronavirus than if we live in areas that, has, that have clean air. So climate change did not cause the pandemic, but it is interacting with and exacerbating all kinds of other factors that make the pandemic worse. The biggest lesson, though, I feel like we've learned is that for so many years now, our society has just been fragmenting into smaller and smaller groups, politically, racially, culturally, nationally, regionally. It seems like we're focusing more and more on what divides us rather than what unites us. But what the pandemic has shown us is that no matter where we live, no matter what language we speak, no matter what country we're from, no matter what part of the political spectrum we, we identify with, when it all comes down to it, what matters to every single one of us really is the same. It is the health and the safety of our family, our loved ones, our friends, our community. That's what matters mm -hmm. to us. That's what the pandemic affects. And that is exactly what climate change affects too. We care about climate change. We don't have to be from a certain country or a certain place or a certain part of the political spectrum. We can be exactly who we are already. We just haven't connected the dots on climate change as most of us have now on the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We haven't connected the dots between who we are and what we care about and why we are the exact person to care about climate change being exactly who we are. Absolutely. And connecting the dots is so key. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's so many things that we stumble through and there are unnecessary losses of life and there's misery. Uh, there is the, the tribalism that you talk about because we have not connected those dots. And I think one of the things that we need to keep at the front of our, our thoughts and actions is engaging with government and with business. Uh, many of us are in those sectors. And I know that you've thought about some of the dots that might be connected uh, in this pandemic for leaders in government and business in terms of what is needed to, to fight climate change. Can you share some of those? Absolutely. So when it comes to climate change, as John Holdren, who was President Obama's science advisor said, he said, we have three choices. We can reduce our emissions, which is mitigate. We can adapt or prepare for a different future. Or he said, we can suffer. 
And we're going to do some of each. The choice is simply what the proportion is going to be, because the more we reduce our emissions, the less adaptation is required and the less suffering there will be. So in terms of government, in terms of industry, how can we specifically act? Well, first of all, the, the first way we can act is one that we don't often think about. It's efficiency. The cheapest energy is the energy that we never use. It's estimated, a report that just came out this past year, that through implementing efficiency improvements across the whole um, spectrum of the economy in the US, we could cut carbon emissions by 50% just through efficiency. And that means not using energy. Then we have to figure out next how to get our energy from clean ways that don't produce heat trapping gases. And the good news is solar energy with battery storage is now cheaper than natural gas in some parts of the US already. Wind energy is the cheapest form of energy in Texas and over, I think about 20% of our electricity comes from wind already. In Iowa and Kansas, it's well over 30% of their electricity coming from wind. Um, tides, all kinds of new technology, even brand new modular nuclear reactors are actually approaching an affordable price, which nuclear has not been affordable for years. And then we also have to adapt. We have to look at, for example, do we have physical facilities that might be at risk from stronger coastal storms or sea level rise? Um, are we managing a city or a region that has infrastructure and public services that could be at risk from stronger heat waves, um, greater weather variability, increased risk of heavy precipitation or stronger droughts or greater areas burned by wildfire? Um, do we have a supply chain that might be vulnerable to disruptions related to climate change loading the weather dice against us. Again, making heavy rainfall and flooding more frequent in many areas. Um, and again, supersizing the hurricanes, typhoons, and cyclones that we have naturally. So we can each look at those different areas and depending who we are and depending what changes we're able to make, we can all do something that not only helps each other, but actually helps us too whether it's improving our bottom line, cutting costs, being more efficient, or being more prepared and more resilient for the future. Absolutely. And Catherine, you are an evangelist because that was a whole lot of good news in that, oh, in that last answer. I, like <laughs> I mean, there's hope. <laughs> there is hope, but we have to go out and look for it. The hope is not going to come find us. The bad news mm -hmm. will find us. We have to go out and look for the hope. And then when we find the hope, we need to share it. We need to talk about it with other people because so often we feel like we're the only person doing anything or the only company or the only city or the only organization, but we're not. There are hundreds and thousands and even millions of us around the world. And by sharing that information, that gives us hope too, recognizing that we are not alone, that mm -hmm. there are so many others who are doing this too. Yes, indeed. One of the, th the things that I've taken away from your many uh, lectures and articles and presentations is just to talk about solutions and to talk about things that we all care about day to day. And it's very interesting with discussions about climate change because there is the disconnect sometimes or the confusion about weather day to day versus long-term climate. And uh, oftentimes we hear the argument, you can't even accurately predict the weather three days from now so how can you possibly know it's going to happen in 30 years? Can you explain the advanced technologies that climate scientists are using to identify and track long-term patterns in climate and to uh, help us understand the difference between weather and climate? Yes, I absolutely can. And as an atmospheric scientist, I get this all the time. 
And in fact, we have a global weirding episode specifically about this. It's called, It's Cold Outside, Where's Global Warming Now? Yeah. <laughs> so, so first of all, psychologically, we're really bad at planning long term. I mean, we, you know, we all know how much money we should have set away for retirement. We all know how much we should exercise every day. We all know what we should and should not be eating. So, so that's the psychology of it. But then there's even the physiology. They did an experiment where they put two groups of people in two different rooms and one room was room temperature, you know, that we're used to. And then one, the other one was slightly cooler than average. And they asked people whether they thought global warming was real and their answer differed depending on the temperature of the room they were in. And it clearly wasn't conscious because who would say it's cold in this room so global warming isn't real? Nobody would yeah. say that but it subconsciously affects us through our brain, which is obviously in our physical body. So we are predisposed to focus on the short-term variability that we physically experience and witness in the place where we live, but we are not mentally equipped to understand climate because climate is the long-term average of weather over at least 20 to 30 years. And which of us in our heads are capable of adding up the temperature on every single day of the year for at least 20 years and fitting a trend line to it to see if it's going up or down. We're not physically capable of doing that. So because of that, climate is a very non-intuitive concept for us. The fact that it could be freezing cold and snowing in May which it actually did this year, of course. And at the same time, the entire planet could be warming over climate timescales. But we do deal with this type of variability all the time in our daily lives. So for example, we can't predict, you know, people's average lifespan. You can't say this person is going to live, you know, exactly 82 years and three months. But we do know on average, the average lifespan is this much if you're a woman versus a man. Um, the average number of children is this much. We understand averages and that's what climate is. It's the long-term average, not just over time, but over the whole world. So to track those long-term averages, we need data. And of course, that's what Esri does. We need huge <laughs> amounts of data. We need data every day, even if possible, every hour, because then we can understand the short-term variability. Often, you know, the most extreme events in terms of heat and rainfall happen over very short periods of time. And we need to be collecting this data all over the world from ground-based instruments like thermometers and ocean buoys, from satellite instruments that can observe the entire planet. They're even going back in history and using old ships logs from hundreds of years ago to track ocean temperatures across uh, the oceans. Uh, they're using monastery records and historical records to track harvests and when the freeze and thaw came. They've got gridded monthly temperatures for Europe going back 500 years because of all these different data sources they've put together. Mm. We use everything we can, even old artwork, showing where glaciers were at the time when they painted the picture, for mm -hmm. example, to try to track how our climate has changed over the history of human civilization on this planet. And through using all of these human observations, as well as what we call proxy observations, so those are things like tree rings, ice cores, um, coral cores, sediment cores, natural thermometers in the environment, we can go back not just thousands, but millions of years. And that's how we know that today is so unusual. We know that CO2 levels have not been this high for over 15 million years. So there weren't any humans back then, okay. last time they were this high. We also know that temperature is changing faster than any time in the history of human civilization on this planet. And that's why it matters because we're not used to something changing that fast. 
And we also know, and this is kind of the scary thing, that we are putting more CO2 into the atmosphere every year than we can see happen naturally any time as far back as we can go. The closest analog to the present time, um, which was about 50 million years ago or so, it's estimated that about a tenth of the carbon was going into the atmosphere naturally as we humans are putting in today. And that, frankly, is what keeps us climate scientists up at night. Well, a lot of the things that you've mentioned, Catherine, uh, hit right at the core of what we at Esri love to work with and what we produce software to, to optimize and illuminate. So thank you for that, because we've been working for many years on helping scientists to do their, their science better. But one of the things about Esri's uh, technology now and our initiatives is that we are trying to help businesses and governments and other organizations use these same types of very uh, detailed, complex scientific data. But to take some of that complexity away so that people understand what they're looking at mm -hmm. and further so that they can get the urgency of the climate change issue from that. Mm -hmm. Do you have uh, any uh, examples of some of the work that you've done recently along those lines where you've taken some complex, uh, especially point or surface geographic data, and maybe you've told a story uh, to a, a policymaker, maybe to the UN, about how do we understand the, the urgency based on this? Absolutely, uh, because this is what I do. Why I do what I do. I study what climate change means to us in the places where we live, and how we need climate information to inform our decisions. And often, the most rewarding stories are not ones that happen at super high levels, like you know the United Nations or the World Economic Forum. It's a story that happens very much at the local level, where you're dealing with people who have to make decisions to manage their city, their region, their land, their water system, their you know infrastructure. They have to make decisions that are longer term than just a year. If you're just making a year's decision, then all you need to know is, is variability. Is it going to be dry or wet this year, for example, if you're a farmer? But if you're trying to manage longer term, so for example, if you're looking at the future of your property, your land, your farm over the next 20 years, or if you're a water manager and they make water plans going out 100 years, you have to include a changing climate now. Because for centuries, it's as if with planning for human civilization, it's as if we've been driving down the road looking in the rearview mirror. So mm. we plan based on data, but all of our data comes from the past. So we're driving ahead into the future, looking backwards into the past. And when climate isn't changing, that's totally fine, right? Because we know the variability, so we know how wide the lane is, right? And we can prepare for staying in that lane. And then we just go straight ahead because long-term climate was not really changing very much. There was a couple of local exceptions that actually contributed to the decline of entire civilizations, like the Mayan civilization. But they weren't global, and they weren't at the scale that we're seeing today. So we've planned our civilization based on the past, and it has worked great until now. Now we have to look to the future because there's a curve coming up. And in fact, our wheels are already on the rumble strip of the curve. And by the time people actually contact me, they usually hear the wheels on the rumble strip. And that's why they're saying we need more information. So what I do is I go in and I say, all right, we know that there's natural variability. And that means the width of the lane, right? You can have wet or cold or wet or dry or hot or cold. And in some cases, we know, like in Texas, that the width is increasing. As climate changes, our variability is increasing. 
So our wet is getting even wetter and our dry is getting even drier. So number one, we know the variability is increasing. But number two, we know that there's a long-term trend in a certain direction. And what we can do is we can categorize that trend based on, and this is really important, based on the number one uncertainty, which is us. We're the ones causing this. And so how much carbon we produce, how much heat trapping gases we produce, that's what's gonna determine our future. So when we look at the future, I found it's very effective to look at a future that say is um, where the world meets the Paris Agreement targets, we keep warming at or below two degrees Celsius, and then people say, okay, if we tried really hard and we did the best that we could, here's what the change would look like and we have to adapt to that no matter what. Because if everybody pulls up their socks and everybody does their part, that's pretty much the best that we're gonna get. So this is the minimum that we have to adapt to. But then I say, all right, let's look at a four degree world. So a four degree world is what's gonna happen if we don't meet the Paris targets. Mm -hmm. And then I show them the difference between those two futures and I say the difference is our choice. And so all of a sudden you have a water district or you have a group of corn farmers in Iowa and most cases, not every single case, but most cases, especially here in North America, people will say, okay, we can adapt to the two degree future. Um, if, especially if we know it's coming and we know it would take a couple of decades to get there, this is what we could do. We could still provide water, we could still grow our crops, we could still manage our public services. But most times when they look at the four degree future, their conclusion is we can't. We wouldn't be able to provide water under that scenario. We wouldn't be able to provide the services that we do. We wouldn't be able to manage our land in the way that we do. And so all of a sudden, then they understand the benefit of mitigation, even if on their own part, all they can do is adapt. Like with the water system, it doesn't produce a lot of heat trapping gases. But the key to this is not only really framing it very clearly in terms of here are the choices, but using the data and the analysis techniques that they're comfortable with. So if you're working with a water district, what weather stations do they typically use? Um, what reservoirs are they concerned about? What models do they use to estimate supply and demand? If you're working with corn farmers, what yield model do they use? We use the observations that they are used to using so that they're familiar with where that data is coming from and there's a kind of an unbroken connection into the future. Because mm -hmm. again, the goal is we wanna stay on the road. <laughs> and so yeah. to stay on the road, we have to do two things. We have to look forward so that we head around the curve, but we also have to make sure the curve isn't too steep. And that's where the mitigation comes in. Absolutely, fantastic. And in terms of the, the road, and things like the weather stations and the scenarios, to me, that cries out geography. So what role do maps play in all of this? Maps are very powerful and animations too, where you can mm -hmm. get like a, you don't want to show day to day because that's weather, but you could show, you know, the average over 10 years and you could scroll through time and you can really see some trends emerging very powerfully. Data visualization is so important. In fact, I would go so far as to say that you could be doing the best science in the world, but if you do not visualize that science, it could end up being completely useless to anybody but you. A lot of the data sets we work with are so complex. So I work with observational data sets and with global climate model outputs that have millions of data points. And so there's no way even as scientists or data analysts, let alone, you know, an average person that we could look at a data set like that that takes terabytes of data. And if we were just looking at the numbers, if we were just looking at the raw file, there would be no way that we could actually make sense of it. In order to make sense of it, we have to pull out what we're interested in and we have to communicate that in a way that we can understand. 
And that's why visualization is so powerful because it takes huge amounts of data, literally terabytes of data, and it condenses and synthesizes it in a way that we can see it and we can understand it. And often we can recognize and identify patterns or changes much more easily than we could have if we just looked at the numbers themselves. In fact, that's the way our brains are built. Our brains are built to look for patterns. Sometimes our brains work against us. Conspiratorial thinking is actually an outcome of our brains looking for patterns. We see a series of random events and we try to piece those together into a pattern and say, oh, somebody's out to get me or the government has a secret military experiment. That's the downside of that. But on the plus side, our ability to see patterns really is a superpower and visualization is a huge part of what enables us to apply that. How do you think we can bridge the gap between acknowledging the, that the problem exists and actually getting people to be concerned enough to take action? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, climate is changing and humans are responsible. We really have checked. This science goes back to the 1850s. That's how long we've known that digging up and burning coal and then later oil and natural gas produces heat trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around the planet. We've checked and it is not natural cycles, it's not volcanoes, it's not the sun, it really is humans that are causing this change today. And the reason we care about it is not because we naturally care about a one or two or three or even five degree increase in the average temperature of the planet, it's because it affects us. No matter where we live, we are already being affected by a changing climate today. And so people say, well, how can we bridge this gap between saying it's a real problem and saying that we should be concerned enough to take action? We bridge that gap, not by changing our values or by changing who we are, but by recognizing that what we already care about, whether it's our bottom line as a company, whether it's our future vision as a leader, what we already care about is being affected by a changing climate. Whether we care about the integrity of our supply chain, whether we care about our long-term business plan, whether we care about the health and the safety of our employees or our community or just our families and our loved ones, whether we care about the fact that we have a healthy economy or one that's struggling, whether we care about national security and uh, the potential for political instability caused by resource scarcity, whether we care about the fact that there could be millions, tens of millions, even a hundred million refugees by the middle of the century due to mm -hmm. sea level rise alone, let alone drought and flood, if we don't address this problem. Imagine trying to run a business in that type of world. So the bottom line is we already care about a change in climate. We just haven't connected the dots. So how do we bridge the gap between people saying, oh, sure, it's real, but I'm not part of the solution. We bridge it, first of all, by showing them how what you already care about is being affected by a changing climate. So caring about it is who you already are, whether you realize it or not. And then number two, and this is really important, we have to talk about viable, practical, beneficial solutions that we as individuals, we as a community, we as a company or a business or a nonprofit or a city that we can engage in. Solutions that have short-term benefits, whether it's saving us money, improving the atmosphere or the health or the reliability of our resources, as well as long-term benefits and making us more prepared for a changing climate, more resilient, and reducing our contribution to the problem. Solutions are a huge part of the discussion. And one of my favorite resources is Project Drawdown. 
Yes, because yes. they go through like a hundred different solutions. And some of them you know about like utility scale solar, but some of them you might not think about like reducing food waste and bioplastics and educating women and girls in developing countries. There's a huge range of solutions. And in fact, there's many resources that are customized to specific industries like the food industry or the manufacturing industry. And often the best place to go is to a trade organization, for example, for your area and say, hey, do you know of anybody who's been looking at climate solutions in our industry? And most of the time, there will be at least one pioneer, and some industries are actually might be quite a few of them already, early adopters, who have already gone through a lot of the trial and error process that you can learn from. And that's the number one way that I recommend moving ahead with climate action is find the pioneers who have gone before you, ask them candidly for their, their wins, their losses, and their advice. And I have to uh, say that I so agree with you on Project Drawdown. Uh, their executive director, Jonathan Foley, is a good friend of ours at Esri. And there are indeed so many good practical uh, resources that their website has, that their books have. Mm -hmm. And it really gives you a sense that, yes, I am not helpless. I can be part of the solution, something that I do every single day, whether it's recycling, whether it's reducing my consumption of meat, all of that is going to really make a difference. So thank you, Catherine. Exactly. Let's return to the coronavirus pandemic, which is ever present. How do you think what we've confronted in this pandemic in these last few months can help us in the struggle against climate change? So again, we come back to connecting those very important dots. So I think that there are a number of lessons that we have learned. And as I alluded to before, I think the most important one is when it all comes down to it, we all care about the same things. We all share this planet. It is our home. It provides the air that we breathe and the water we drink and the food that we eat and the materials we use to make everything that we have. We can't survive without a healthy planet. The health of the planet is our health. I feel like the pandemic has brought that home in spades. Mm -hmm. What we've also seen happening though, is we have seen what it would look like if our energy came from clean sources. We have seen the blue skies. We have seen the clean air. We have seen the green fields. We have seen what it could look like. We have a tiny glimpse of that better future and that better future is what we need. We, um, the, the visions of the apocalypse are not enough to motivate you know, long-term action. We'll have a short-term reaction, but we really need to bridge over the apocalypse to that better future. And I feel like we've seen a tiny little glimpse of that today. And then I think the pandemic has also showed that in many places, in many ways, fossil fuels are no longer the best choice. I've been reading some really interesting articles about how the pandemic has not only tanked oil and gas prices, in some cases they were negative this past May, but it's also tanked the coal industry because renewables are so affordable and storage is there today. Renewables are really starting to phase coal out of the market already and oil and gas are next on the list. Then there's some cities that due to the shutdown have realized they need a lot more pedestrian areas. They need a lot more bikeways. And there's many people who've realized, hey, we don't have to fly all over the world anymore to do our meetings. There's a lot more that we could do than we're not doing. And people have realized we can. So I do think this is a huge turning point for us. My hope is that we'll move forward into a better world because of this. That is a fantastic note to end on, Catherine. Hope. Thank you so much. 
And again, on behalf of my colleagues at Esri, thank you so much for being on this Science of Wear podcast. I know our listeners will really, really enjoy it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Catherine Hayhoe for sharing practical solutions that we can enact now to fight climate change. To learn more about location intelligence and solutions for sustainability, visit esri.com.